1,000 years ago, Bernard of Clairvaux said this, the deep of my profound misery calls to the deep of your infinite mercy. And I just think that's a very powerful thing to say. The deep of my profound misery calls to the deep of your infinite uh, mercy. And part of the reason I love that so much is because it's very honest. So, you know, he's going through something, commenting on Psalm 42, but he's going through something obviously deep and, and difficult and challenging, and he doesn't pretend like he has it all together. It's a very honest word. And so he's calling out to the infinite mercy of God because he's in a place that is so vulnerable that, that he realizes that he can't get out of it on his own. And so today we're talking about honesty, among other things. And part of the risk that we have as Christians, I think, is that we go along, we're doing our best, we're trying to follow Jesus, and we're trying to be holy and loving and true and gracious and all these things. And we're trying to do that, but sometimes we can pretend as if we're further along the road than we actually are. Sometimes it can be like, we, we, we can pretend as if we have more answers than we actually do, or, or we have more confidence than we actually have. And it's almost like we can get afraid that, wait a second, if I admit that I don't know something, or if I'm really struggling and I don't know the answer or how to get out of a situation that I'm in, that somehow like we're not good people or not being faithful simply because we're experiencing some depth of misery. And so we're in a series called The Most Famous Psalms, and today we arrive at Psalm 51. Uh, And in it, it, it's one of the Psalms of David, and in it, we find some incredible and profound honesty by David. And you're going to recognize parts of this psalm as we go along. Kind of the central part of the psalm is verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, I've been preaching for a while at this church. I've been preaching for over 15 years, uh, over 600 sermons here or, you know, connected with the congregation. And after a while, you start to get a sense of how people respond to certain types of sermons, certain types of themes, right? You don't always hear back from people, but you do sometimes and you get a sense. People seem to respond really well and favorably to sermons like sermons about compassion, Right, compassion, the compassion that God shares with us, the compassion that we might be sharing with other people. We know it's connected to the great command. Uh, Another theme is community. People tend to respond really favorably about themes around community and people and fellowship and, you know, the important role that people play in our lives and the important role that we play in the lives of others and how we build each other up. People generally respond favorably to those. You want to know what's on the bottom of the list? Sermons about sin and repentance. Well, friends, today we are talking about sin and repentance. And for those watching the live stream, don't press pause the Lord sees, okay, I'm just saying. Okay, but, um, you know, there's this Methodist minister, and I love this story. Uh, one time he was talking to some congregants, he was pretty well known, and they come up to him, and, and, they, and they were pretty bold, and, and they asked him if he would stop speaking about sin so clearly. Stop speaking about sin so clearly. And this is, was his response. Would you like me to replace the label on a poison jar to say it's peppermint? <laughs> well, no, and his point was it's not loving to lie. It's not loving to lie when we talk about some of these big and powerful realities and challenges that we face. It's not loving to lie. So that's one reason to focus on a sermon about sin and repentance. The second one is that Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus talked about this. People talk, oh, I love the words of Jesus. I love what Jesus said. Yeah, and and quite often when they say that, 
it's true, but quite often people can cherry pick the certain things about Jesus that they already happen to agree with, and because Jesus said them, it makes them feel better. But Jesus, in the breadth of his teaching, preaches about repentance and sin a lot. And so one of the examples was in Mark 1.15, this is his first public proclamation uh, when he's starting his, his ministry in Mark. And he says, uh, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. So that's the second reason why we should talk about it. The third is that it's actually good for us. Right? We like all nice, warm, cozy, positive feelings. Give me the warm feels. Yes, this is actually good for us. It doesn't seem like that on the surface, but it actually is. In Los Angeles, there's something called the Apology Sound Off Line. It's a line that people can call in and anonymously confess things. So people call in, they confess a lot of things. They, they confess small crimes. They, commit, they confess to murder. They confess to cheating on their taxes. Um, the most common confession that people have is adultery. Um, they confess that. Sometimes people confess they've been in a car accident and it's been their fault. One lady called in and through her weeping sobs, she said, five people died. I wish I could bring them back. Now, one of the things that tells me that such a line exists just for anyone is there's a deep desire and need to be honest to make confession in our lives, not, not only to God, but to other people about the things that we are wrestling with. There's even this psychology textbook. It's a secular psychology textbook that says this. People who don't confess their sins to someone experience greater anxiety, depression, and bodily symptoms such as back pain and headaches. Research saying actually confessing sin and brokenness and the things that we're struggling with actually has psychological and physical positive impacts on your life. Now, all those things are nice and good, but we are looking at it from the point of faith as God's people. What is, what is the general trajectory? Why is this good for us according to the biblical teaching? Theologian John Piper uh, shares this word. Both Old and New Testament teaching on godly regret and repentance is that it should lead us to life and hope and freedom, not to lasting distress and bitterness and paralyzing self-hate. So, so it actually has a function and a purpose when we're honest about these things. What would you prefer? Life, hope, freedom that results from this process or distress, bitterness, paralyzing self-hate? I'll take life, hope, and freedom. Okay, so what does the word repentance even mean? Well, there's a lot of words in the Bible for repentance. Even in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there's a couple different ones. Kind of the main one is shuv. It means turning around. Shuv, turning around, okay? In the New Testament, kind of the, the basic primary word for to repent is a metanoieo. It means turning one's mind toward God. Okay? So the common theme there is a turning around from something bad to something good. And so imagine you're driving down the road, you realize, I am going the wrong direction. And so to get in the right direction, not only do you need to admit it in your mind and maybe say something about it, you actually need to turn the car around and go the other way. And so that gets close to what is meant by the biblical idea of repentance. Okay, So today we're going to look at an example of true repentance through the eyes of King David, someone who had gone through some really horrific things, and he sinned big time, as we will see and explore. Okay, And so then we're going to look at his example and think, okay, what can we learn from this about our own process of true repentance? But as we get in this, this is what I mean by true repentance. True repentance is wanting your heart to follow your tongue. Okay? 
Now, I put a weird graphic on there just so you'd remember it. Okay, true repentance is wanting your heart to follow your tongue. What I mean by your heart is I'm speaking of the heart metaphorically about what is in you, the, the, the deepest part of you. This is where your priorities and emotions are. Okay? And then your tongue is what you say. And so we just don't want to express repentance with lip service. We actually want to live differently as a result. So, okay, God, I'm sorry. Please change me from the inside out to live in a way that is more like Christ. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to start affecting change that helps us do that. That's what is meant by your heart to follow your tongue or your mouth in what you say. Okay? So with that in mind, our example is Psalm 51. We're going to open the Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll put it up there on the screen. Now, a couple of things about Psalm 51 that you should uh, note. It's one of the seven penitential psalms. And so the historic church has, has earmarked seven, churches, seven psalms as penitential psalms, meaning psalms that express sorrow and regret for sin and repentance and asking for God's mercy to help us. And of all those, and they're um, 6, 32, 38, this one, 51, um, 102, 130, and 143. And some Christians will pray through them and to help them with their own prayer life. Um, but this one is, is probably the most intense and personal and well-known of all the penitential psalms. Another thing of a historical note that I think is interesting, which communicates something to us about how closely this psalm has been held to the heart of God's people as something that is about repentance and, and, and needing God's mercy in times of distress some of you will remember Thomas More, who was a figure from the early 16th century. He was a layman, but he was very devout. He was a Roman Catholic. And he rose to be the Lord High Chancellor in England, to be the right-hand man of the king. Just so happened that the king at the time was King Henry VIII, very volatile person, not really a safe time to be the king's right-hand man. <clears throat> and that was when he wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine, and marry someone who he thought could give him a male heir. Um, her name was Anne Boleyn, also a famous historical figure. Uh, he was also seeking to make himself the head of the church in England, not the Pope. Um, Thomas More would not go along with this, and so he was charged with high treason. He was put in the Tower of London. And in July of 1535, he gets out to be beheaded. And so he was to be executed by beheading, which is, it was actually a public event. Like you would go out there and, you know, there'd be a priest there and officials and people could gather uh, there it was outside the Tower of London and be beheaded. Um, and then someone who was there watching it heard Thomas More before his uh, final act in this world beheading, and he recited Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, etc. So it's just, it, that just to me demonstrates how powerful this has been through time. Someone reported that to his family who recorded it in a biography. Okay, so the very first part of it is that subtitle. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, pause. We don't totally know exactly when the subtitles are included with the Psalms. Clearly, in the ancient manuscripts, there is a, an ancient tradition that says this goes back to David. To me, I have no reason to, to, believe, to doubt that. A lot of the Psalms are from David, and it seems to reflect that historical, historical circumstance. So it's good for us to know what in the world they're talking about if we're going to make sense of the words that follow in Psalm 51. Okay. So here it is. It's a story recorded in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And get this. So there's David. He's King David. He's an adult now. He's ruling. He's in Jerusalem. And Israel's army is out, and they're fighting against the Ammonites. Okay? Out there. But he's decided, and sometimes he'll go out in battle, but sometimes he stays home. So he stays back. Um, but while he's there, he's, he's outside, and he looks out down, and he sees this young woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And he is aroused by this. And so he gets Bathsheba to come in with him, and they, you know, 
They have sex. And she becomes pregnant. Lo and behold, she becomes pregnant. And David starts to freak out, thinking, oh my goodness, like people are going to know that I've committed adultery with Bathsheba. This isn't very good. And so he concocts this scheme to get out of his sin. And so her husband, Uriah, is fighting on the front lines of David and Israel's own battles out against the Ammonites. So if I get him home, maybe he'll spend time with his wife and people will think that the baby is from them and not me and I'll get out of this. And so Uriah comes home, he's there. But because of his sense of duty and honor towards his fellow soldiers, he actually doesn't go in to spend time with his wife. And so David realizes this, oh no, this isn't working. And so then he tries again. He gets Uriah drunk, thinking, okay, they, maybe that'll you know, lessen his defenses a little bit. He'll go in with his wife Bathsheba now. Still doesn't work. Like, what in the world do I do? And so he sends a note to the commander of his army, Joab, send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines with the intention that he's going to get killed. And that is exactly what happens. Word comes back. Uriah has died on the front lines. And after a period of mourning with Bathsheba, then she comes in and becomes one of David's wives. Wow. Theologian J.I. Packer summarizes for us the extent of David's sin, okay? Now think of the Ten Commandments. We often think of the Ten Commandments. This is what, you know, you know for Christians, these are some of what we look to as kind of the moral law, ways to live a moral life. David broke the Tenth Commandment by coveting his neighbor's wife. He broke the Eighth Commandment by stealing her, assuming that she felt she could not refuse the advances of the powerful king. Broke the Seventh Commandment by committing adultery with her. Next. Broke the ninth indirectly by trying to fool, lie to Uriah, Uriah, her husband. Broke the sixth commandment by liquidating Uriah from long range. That, my friends, is a lot of sin. And then what happens is the prophet Nathan confronts him. Maybe David thinks he's gotten away from it. So David has revealed to the prophet Nathan what has gone on. He confronts David, and all of a sudden David has stared face to face with his own sins, and he realizes that great truth from Hebrews 4.16, that nothing is hidden from God's sight what have I done? And in this state, Psalm 51 comes to us, beginning at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Interesting language here. He's washing, watching Bathsheba wash. Now he wants to be washed from his iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now a couple of things here, that doesn't seem right. Verse 4, um, I've sinned only against you because he sinned against a whole lot of other people. He sinned against two, Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the people of Israel. He's in a position of trust as king, a head commander. Okay, So what's going on here? This is a case of hyperbole where he is so aware that he has sinned first and foremost against God. All sin is primarily against God. We need to know that all sin is primarily against God. And we, the reason we need to reflect on this is because in our day today, we can fall victim to the thinking that something is only wrong if someone else gets hurt. And that is a factor for sure, right? Well, such as it's not hurting anybody. Well, that's a secondary issue. All sin is primarily against God. I swear, well, no one's getting hurt. Well, someone, who's, someone steals from someone who's rich and gives to the poor, two consenting adults and gives with, 
you know, promiscuous sexual behavior. Well, no one's hurting anybody. Well, and I have hateful thoughts towards someone. I, I, I think it, but I don't say it. Well, it's not hurting anybody. No, no, those are secondary issues, as serious as they are. All sin is primarily against God. Am I sinning against God's teachings, law, commandment? And David in this moment is so intensely aware of this. On this psalm, Tim Keller, who passed away two days ago from his battle with um, pancreatic cancer, by the way, uh, says this. He says, in a prayer to God, reflecting this, when, when I sin, I don't just break your laws, God. When I sin, I don't just break your laws. I trample on your heart. I trample on your heart. And so David is aware of that in this moment. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart, or in the inner places. Now, we could extrapolate a lot from those verses. We'll get more into that in Psalm, when we get to Psalm 139. But here, I think the thrust is that he's aware that from the very beginning of his life, when God is entering into a relationship with him in his mother's womb, he's aware of his own sinfulness, going back that far. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, again, historically, we kind of don't really do this anymore, so we need to say a word about it. Uh, There's an ancient ritual where where branches from a hyssop plant, they were kind of very small leaves, and so they were dipped in in, in blood in Leviticus 14 or water in Numbers 19, kind of in this purification ritual and kind of um, sprayed on someone as a part of their cleansing from sin. Um, Actually, I thought it'd be great to actually have some hyssop branches like that here as a visual prop. And uh, Susie called around like four or five places. No one had hyssop branches, go figure. Um, It was too bad, but thanks for trying, Susie. We tried to have some hyssop branches in here. But the idea here is that that he is so aware of that, he's aware of this ritual of purification. Um, And he says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Uh, My family recently went to Pennsylvania. And uh, we went to Sight and Sound Productions, and Sight and Sound Theaters had this, these amazing productions. Uh, we saw David, so it was a production of the life of David. Um, animal, live animals on the stage, hundreds of actors, the, the, over a thousand people in the stadium. It was really amazing. And they depicted this whole story of David, kind of right from the start, right to the very end, and they included a section on you know, Bathsheba. Um, and they showed that, well, they didn't show that. They... <laughs> talked about that and you know pg-13 and the whole thing right anyway but after he's been confronted by david he's out there in in the wilderness and he's bending down and he's so upset and he's and he's praying words to god which would become psalm 51 and at this moment where he asked to be prayed that you know he'd be washed clean whiter than snow that this incredible effect where all of a sudden snow started to fall on fall on david and then snow started falling on on all thousand of us in the theater it was really cool. I think they had done it with little mini bubbles or something, but it was so powerful. It just reminds you of, of the freshness and the newness of that first snow, maybe in late November or early December. It was a great effect. But this is what David wants. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now what we need to notice here is David is asking God to create in him a clean heart. He can't do it himself. He needs an outside source to come in. Create in me because all his own schemings and and everything else, they have not worked. God needs to work from the outside in. Then verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Hebrew linguist Robert Alters says that um, the sense here with the Hebrew word under what is in English, cast me not away, has the sense of flinging. Don't fling me away because he's saying, don't be so disgusted with me that you fling me away. You found a dead and rotting mouse in the house and you fling it in disgust out into a field. The sense is like, God, because of what I've done, don't fling me away in disgust. And he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now this is uh, one of the three times in the entirety of the Old Testament where the exact phrase Holy Spirit is used. What I think is going on here is David is aware that he has been given um, guidance, um, the presence and power of the Spirit as he is king. So he doesn't want that to be taken from him as he leads the people. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He doesn't have the joy of salvation anymore because of his awareness of what he has done. He wants that to return. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, which is guilt from shedding blood. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Another famous verse, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Here we're getting a sense that David's repentance is genuine, not only for the reasons already stated, but because he wants all this to happen, not so that he can just be feeling cozy and happy all the time, but so that he can teach others, so that he can praise God, so that he can serve God. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Contrite meaning humble and repentant. Oh God, you will not despise. It's like he's saying we could kill an animal and put it on the altar, slaughter it. I feel like the one slaughtered God. I just have to offer you my broken spirit. Verse 18, too good to Sion, which is Jerusalem, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Those are the words of an honest man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so uh, where do we take this psalm from here? Well, uh, God sees everything. We could talk about that, how God sees everything. That's clearly in there. We could talk about the fact that all sin is primarily against God, which we need the reminder of in these modern times. We could talk about something that's very good news, that, that no sin is too great to be forgiven by God. I think that's a piece of the good news of this psalm. David receives that. He continues in his leadership. We could talk about how God restores us to his joy and gives us a willing spirit. There are times when we just need to come to God and, and ask for him to, to revive us in that way and, and restore his joy to us. We could focus on how there are times when all we have to offer to God because we are weary and wobbly is a broken spirit. But our focus today is this idea of true repentance and that true repentance is wanting your heart to follow your tongue. But before we get there and before I highlight four things that I think we can do to, to kind of as a model for our own true repentance is I need to put two words up there, salvation and sanctification because we need to be clear on something because if we get these two things mixed up, it can all go wrong when we're talking about sin and repentance, okay? So salvation, what is salvation? Salvation is being right with God in this life and the next, okay? It's being in a right relationship with God. It's being saved, we'll say, redeemed, forgiven at peace, okay? And so how does that happen? Well, we don't earn that, okay? 
Christ dies for When we come to believe who Jesus is, what he has done for us on the cross, Jesus takes the penalty for our sin on the cross, and we are given forgiveness and peace with God. So Ephesians 2.8 says it is, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So God reaches out to us in, in grace through Christ, what he has done for us on the cross. We trust him and what he has done for us. We respond in faith, and we are in that right relationship with God. And that's not that's something that no one can take from us, okay? Salvation by grace through faith, okay? Now, the other side is sanctification. Now, that's a big churchy word. What it means is being made holy or being more like Jesus, being the hands and feet of Jesus, okay? So, having been saved and put into a right relationship with God, experiencing his eternal forgiveness and peace, then we want to become more holy. And we do this out of gratitude, out of faithfulness, out of obedience. And in that process of sanctification, as we try to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we will sin. Some days we'll go one step forward, two step back. We'll struggle. We always struggle with sin as we go through our lives. And the reason it's important to focus on that is because if there's a particular sin or some sins that you're struggling with, that does not mean that you are not redeemed by God. Okay? It's not what we do, it's not our works, it's not how great we are at being moral superheroes. We all struggle with this. It's a process of sanctification, of becoming like Jesus, and will not complete until we take our last breath on earth, okay? And so let's say I have an anger management problem, okay? Let's say I struggle with that, and... Um, you know, I, there's consequences to that, and I struggle with that, and I, I call to God to help me, but it's something that keeps coming up in my life. That doesn't mean I'm not saved, okay? I'm saved. I'm struggling with this aspect as a part of my sanctification. Uh, but we need to know that, and, and because if, if we're talking about sin and repentance, I just don't want anyone to think that, okay, I struggle with such and such. Maybe I'm not a real Christian, okay? I just want that to be clear. Okay, so having said that, we're going to go through four points. First, we need to take sin seriously. This is the first thing, and perhaps we live in a time in which tries to minimize our sin or, or be dismissive about sin, and so we need to take sin seriously. Uh, David did. Like, this is not someone who, who thinks that, ah, I'm the king, I can do what I want, or this doesn't matter. He is so aware that he has offended God that it is changing him. Douglas Wilson has said, sin never gets better when we wink at it. Sin never gets better when we wink at it. In other words, when we have a casual or flirtatious attitude towards sin, that doesn't make it better. It invites it through the main door to have a more prominent role in your life. Okay? In his book, Rediscovering Holiness, theologian J.A. Packer says this, unless and until it is reestablished that the Christian life for everyone is a life of self-scrutiny, self-humbling, daily repentance for daily sins, Satan will continue to score. We need to take sin seriously. Second, be honest before God. Okay, look at how honest David was. This is a part of his example. Uh, are we that honest? Sometimes I feel like we dance around God in our prayers. And it's like, as if he doesn't know what's going on. We use these fancy words or skirt around the issue as if he doesn't know. And in our lack of honesty, are we not really truly inviting him into those places to work his renovating power? C.S. Lewis was a great uh, literary critic, world-renowned literary critic. He was also a well-known atheist who, through his study of a variety of things, um, 
uh, was converted to the Christian life, one of his books, he says this, lay before him, meaning God, lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. God can take the truth. God can handle it, right? We need to be honest. Jesus talks about honesty in prayer. I was recently reminded of that movie, A Few Good Men. Remember that? Few good men, dramatic court scene, and there's Tom Cruise on this one side, and there's Jack Nicholson on the one side, and Nicholson delivers that you know, famous line, Son, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> it's like that's what we think of God. Third, ask God to create a clean heart in you. That's what David did. Create in me a clean heart. He is so aware of his own depravity. God needs to come in and do the work miraculously from the inside out. Tim Day describes being at an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, where the leader did something really creative. He had everyone get there. He, he passed around clipboards, pencils, and paper, and invited everyone who was there to write down all the things that they had tried to do to help them to stop drinking. And people spent several minutes writing a bunch of things down, and then as he started the meeting, the leader said, now can we all just agree that none of this works? Because the idea is we need to call upon our higher power. We need to call upon God. And unless we realize that we need help from an outside source, we're just going to be spinning our wheels. So as it relates to our sin that we are dealing with, and it's going to be different for different people, and all the stuff that we try to do by ourselves to get on the right track without God, can we all just agree that none of that works without God? Fourth and finally, cooperate with what God wants to do in you. God will act. You're taking sin seriously. You're being honest before God. You're asking God to create a clean heart within you from the inside out and start to look for the ways that God is going to respond to those and cooperate. God will act. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, in a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, says this about repentance. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. It requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin because sometimes we can go on, these things are happening in our lives, and it's like it's a familiar friend or a familiar pattern, and we're more intimate with that. And so part of the creation that we want God to work within us is, is to create in us such a wonderful intimacy with God that we, that we want that more than anything else. And you start to look for the ways that God is acting, and you respond to those things. That's what is meant by cooperation. Start to notice how he is changing you, how he is moving you to love his word, how he is moving you to be captivated by Jesus, how he is putting new opportunities or decisions in your life which will honor him. Look for those new situations and, and doors that he is opening for you to make decisions in a different way and then cooperate. True repentance is wanting your heart to follow your tongue. This is what David says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That leads to life and hope and freedom. And so friends, David was both broken and beloved 
He was both broken and beloved. And if you are in Christ, the same is true for you. Amen.